So let's pray together this morning. Oh, yes, Lord, we will. We will bless your name when we are low in the valley or while we're waiting or when our hearts are heavy or when we're celebrating because wherever we are on this journey, your presence is there with us and you will never fail us. Nothing can stand against us. We love that we can call on you in the midst of our wandering or in our wondering what is our next step. Thank you that you are always present in the world around us and in our spirit within us. Help us recognize the work of your hands. Give us the grace to recognize the stirrings of your spirit within us and listen attentively to all that you have to say to us, even this morning. Lord, many parts of this country are experiencing extreme weather, drought, heat, rain, and more. Father, we pray for your protection of your creation and of your people. And Father, we pray for our middle and high school students who are going to head out to river camp on Wednesday. At least 50 kids going with our leaders. So we pray for a time of refreshment and fun for them. We pray for Sean as he goes and teaches. We pray for Becca and all the leaders as they build relationships. And we pray for the young people as they build friendships and for all that they would grow closer to you, Jesus. And of course, we pray for safety throughout this grand adventure. We pray for kids of all ages this morning. May this summer provide a mix of rest and fun to help them recover from the stress that they've been under. And Lord, we pray for Bernard's teaching this morning from Daniel as he begins this new series. We thank you for bringing him safely home from a great time in Turkey. And we thank you for the prep that he has done. And we pray for him this morning as he brings your word to us. Would you speak to us through him? We raise our entire service to you, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Peter and Bernard chose this passage to start his Daniel, um, what am I trying to say, series, thank you, his series um, in Daniel because it addresses exiles and God's people scattered, displaced. So listen to these words from 1 Peter, some from chapter 1 and some from chapter 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles, scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God, and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, 
offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Well, thanks to God for his word. Well, good morning, everybody. After uh, a year or more of preaching to a camera, it is so good to be up here and actually see real people, to be able to look out on faces, and um, hopefully I anticipate engaging with you and uh, getting your responses. Um, but we still have a camera here. Uh, this is part of our new normal going ahead, and uh, for our 10.30 service, we will have a live stream audience. So I will... Uh, Need to learn to look at the camera and to enjoy looking at all your faces. Great to see you. Uh, well, Sharon mentioned that uh, I got back from Turkey. So 12 days ago, Sue and I returned from two and a half weeks in Turkey. It was our first international travel in nearly three years. Uh, I think that's the longest I've gone without leaving a country in my entire life, I think. Uh, and First time on a plane for two years. I wasn't sure if I was quite ready for that, especially as the flight from San Francisco to Istanbul is 13 hours. It's a long time to be in a little tube with, and it was probably 98% full. So a lot of people. And um, we returned 12 days ago, just three days before my passport hit the uh, six-month validity period in which it will expire. So now I need to renew my passport. I still have a British passport, but for uh, over 30 years, I've also had a, I'm a card-carrying resident alien. My uh, resident alien card is so old, it doesn't expire, which is rather convenient. So I've got uh, sort of a split identity. So part of me is British, part of me is here in the US. Uh, there's my country of citizenship and my country of residence. And I will be applying for a new British passport. Unfortunately, the new one will not have printed at the top, which this one has, which is European Union. So I won't have this automatic passport to most of Europe. But it raises for me again the question of, will I ever take the plunge and become a US citizen? Will I ever harmonize my citizenship and my residency and bring them to one country? Now, if you know me, uh, for me it's a bit complicated because I've lived in so many countries uh, all around the world. Now, if I'm to do this, then I would have to take the naturalization oath of allegiance to the United States of America, which begins this way. I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty 
of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen. Now, many of you have taken that oath. You've come here from other countries and have taken out U.S. citizenship. Um, but for swearing or renouncing an existing allegiance and then swearing a new allegiance, this is a serious matter. Sometimes we feel caught between competing loyalties and allegiances. Sometimes, depending on what teams are playing in a sports fixture, you may feel that way. You want to support both sides. Uh, or perhaps we might feel caught in loyalty to our employer versus loyalty to our sense of ethics or of decency, of propriety, of what is legal. Peer pressure generates plenty of conflicting loyalties. And politics is all about managing competing loyalties. So we live in a confusing world of these competing loyalties. And today we begin a new series in the book of Daniel in which competing loyalties are front and center. They're a major theme of the book. And over the next seven weeks, we'll look at the first seven chapters of this. And we'll take one chapter per week. And then sometime next year, we will finish off the rest of the book. So today we'll look at chapter one, which introduces the book and most of the key characters um, that will play a role in the first six chapters. And I hope that you have brought your Bibles with you today. Um, we're encouraging you to do that. We no longer have pew Bibles, but encourage you to bring them along. And um, today I'm going to read all of chapter one as part of the message, because chapter one and chapter 12 are the only chapters that are remotely near short enough to actually read as part of the uh, Sunday morning. If you're familiar with Daniel, you'll know that chapters 2 through 11 are very, very long. So I will not read them on Sunday morning, but I do encourage you to read them ahead of time each week and to bring your Bible along. So, opening our Bibles then, we're going to turn to the book of Daniel and uh, start in on chapter 1, and I'm going to read from the NIV. And we read, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. So Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Well, how much history is packed into that short statement? Under his father, Nabopolassar, Babylon had become the dominant power in Mesopotamia in the year 612 BC. It defeated Assyria by capturing the capital, Nineveh. And now Babylon was top dog. And it turns its attention westwards towards Egypt. And Judah found itself caught between these two competing empires, Babylon in the east and Egypt in the west. Now in the E! News, I uh, asked you to read the last three chapters of 2 Kings to help prepare for today. And if you did that, uh, you would have read in the third last chapter about King Josiah. He was a godly man, and he led the people of God in a covenant renewal and in the celebration of Passover greatest celebration of Passover there had been. Josiah was the last good and godly king of Judah, but then sadly, foolishly, and needlessly, 
He chose to get involved in this conflict between Babylon and Egypt, and he got himself killed by the Egyptian pharaoh. And then Egypt and Babylon took it in turns imposing puppet kings in Jerusalem. And the point of a puppet king is that that king is supposed to be loyal to the overlord, to the great emperor that has installed that puppet king. These kings of Judah sort of repeatedly switched sides between Babylon and Egypt. They were trying to play the field, figuring out which was advantageous, and they kept switching their loyalties. And so Nebuchadnezzar would come to, Babylon, to Jerusalem and besiege it again and again and again. And the first time, he took away the golden vessels from the temple. These were the vessels made by Solomon 350 years earlier. The vessels were used in the worship of Yahweh. Next time, Nebuchadnezzar took away many of the people. The time after that, he took yet more of the people and all of the bronze items from the temple, the altar of burnt offering and the basin for uh, purifying, cleansing the priests. And he burnt the temple and the palace and the city, and he knocked down the walls. And by this time, there wasn't very much left of Jerusalem. Now, in doing all this, in his repeated visits to Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar thought that he was acting with agency, that he was victorious because he was the great king of the greatest empire, and because his god, the god of Babylon, Marduk, had, was stronger than the god of uh, the Israelites in Jerusalem. But Nebuchadnezzar didn't have agency. Our text tells us that it was the Lord who delivered everything into his hands. Because you see, Babylon's depredations were divine judgment upon God's people. Now, three weeks ago, Sharon preached here, her first full sermon here on Habakkuk. Well done, Sharon. Great to have you up here. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> Big thumbs up. So thank you for drawing the parallel between Habakkuk and his tension and our tension today. Now, part of his tension was that he understood that God's judgment upon his people was merited. But he had great trouble accepting the fact that God's instrument that he was using was the wicked and godless Babylonians. Now, through all this turmoil with Babylon, the leadership in Jerusalem hurtled headlong into the abyss towards disaster. As I mentioned, the final kings kept switching their loyalty back and forth between Babylon and Egypt, but they never gave their allegiance to the Lord, the God of Israel. They never gave the allegiance to the one who had brought his people up out of Egypt into the land of promise. Instead, we read again and again, they all did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And the faithful prophet Jeremiah repeatedly warned them of coming destruction. But the false prophets kept giving reassurances. Oh, in just two years, the Lord will bring back everything that Nebuchadnezzar has taken to Babylon. He'll bring back the, uh, the captured vessels and the king and the people. Everything will be okay. Not so, said Jeremiah. You're going to be in Babylon a long time. So settle down, build houses, plant gardens, marry, have children, have grandchildren, and then he proclaimed the word of the Lord in Jeremiah 29, some famous verses. Seek the peace and prosperity, that's the word shalom, of the city to which I've carried you into exile. 
Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Now notice the fourfold use of shalom in these two well-known verses. NIV translates it here as prosperity. We could also translate it as well-being or flourishing. Pursue and pray for the flourishing of Babylon. In its flourishing will be your flourishing. The Lord's plan for the future shalom, the future flourishing of his people run through the flourishing of Babylon. How can this possibly be? Well, the first two verses have moved us, the readers, from Jerusalem to Babylon, along with the temple vessels. And Nebuchadnezzar has placed these vessels in the temple of his God in Babylonia. But the word used here is actually the word shinar. And this word is evocative because this was a word that was used in Genesis chapter 11. This is where humanity gathered together in autonomy from God. They settled in Shinar and they built the Tower of Babel. So Shinar was the precursor to the call of Abraham. And the Lord called Abraham out of the land of Shinar. But now his descendants are back in the land of Shinar. And all that God promised to and through Abraham seems now to have come to an end. The promise of a numerous people living in the land of promise with God's presence in their midst. Now it is all gone. The temple and divine presence, the king and the palace, the city and its walls, the people and the land, all gone. There is no more shalom. There is no more flourishing. And it's a diminished, displaced, landless people that is back in Shinar, in Babylon. And Psalm 137 voices the trauma of these exiles in Babylon. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? And the pathos of this psalm is conveyed in Vapensiero, uh, the mournful chorus of the Hebrew slaves in uh, Verdi's opera Nabucco, that's uh, Nebuchadnezzar. O mia patria, si bella e perduta. Oh, my homeland, so beautiful, but lost. So beautiful, but lost. This is whom the book of Daniel is written for. A traumatized, displaced people trying to flourish in Babylon and all of its successor empires. And the first six chapters are about four such displaced people trying to flourish in the court of the Babylonian king. See, Daniel is written for a diaspora community trying to be loyal to God while living in a world that pays no attention to God. Not just in a foreign land, but in a foreign land that is opposed to God. And it is thus quite relevant for us today. Well, attention now turns to the king in Babylon in verse 3. We read that the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. 
He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. And the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. So, a growing empire requires an expanded imperial bureaucracy in service to the king. Nebuchadnezzar enrolled the best young men from Jerusalem. They're impressive in every way. They're the cream of the crop. Today, they would be admitted to Stanford or Harvard. And they were to be taught the language and literature of the Babylonians. They were to be re-educated, indoctrinated into Babylonian culture and ways. And they were to dine on the rich food and wine from the king's table. They were to be absorbed into his magnificent royal court. And at the end of three years in culturation, they would enter the king's imperial service as loyal subjects and servants to the great king. They would be assimilated. And among these impressive Israelite youth were four who will feature prominently in these first six chapters of the book. Verse 6. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And the chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshech, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now we're told their names here, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and they each bore God's name. See, these Hebrew names each contain the syllable Yah for Yahweh or El for God. But these names were stripped from them, and they're given new names, names that are built around the names of Babylonian deities. And names are important. Many of you have taken on new names after moving to this country. For me, growing up in Thailand, all my family, we all had Thai names, carefully chosen for their meaning by my father. Mine was Suwat. And this is how the Thai people know us. They didn't know us by our uh, English names. They, knew us, they all knew us by our Thai names. And names and naming are significant in Scripture because renaming indicates a new identity. So a few weeks ago, uh, we heard from Brian that how Pharaoh renamed Joseph to Zaphonath Paneah when he entered into uh, the king's service, the Pharaoh's service, as being chief over Egypt. And the Lord renames people. He renamed Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah, Jacob to Israel, indicating their new role within God's purposes. In the New Testament, Saul becomes Paul. The renaming of these four youths is part of their new identity, their assimilation. They now belong to Babylon and to its king. Or do they? Verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. So in response to this redefinition of identity and the renaming, Daniel pushes back. He resolved to not defile himself with the king's food and wine 
and sought permission from the chief official to refrain. It was an act of resistance. And for the second time, we read that God gave. God gave Daniel favor and compassion with Ashpenaz. And the word translated favor here is actually the word hesed, which implies loyalty and faithful commitment. So again, we're in the language of loyalty. There are competing loyalties here. We, the readers, are assured of the Lord's loyalty and commitment to Daniel in his difficult position. Daniel is drawing a line on his loyalty to the king. By refusing the royal food, he is resisting the king's effort to assimilate him fully into his realm. And then poor Ashpenaz is caught between a God-given loyalty to Daniel and loyalty to his boss. He has compassion towards Daniel, but he fears that the king will have his head. And so Daniel goes not over him, but under him. Verse 11, Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. So Daniel proposes to the guard a test. Let us eat only vegetables and drink only water for 10 days, then evaluate us. Compare us with all the other young men eating that rich diet from the king's table. And after the 10 days, they looked healthier and sleeker than the others. So the guard made the arrangement uh, permanent. So what is the deal with the food and drink that we keep reading about in this chapter? Is it that vegetables and water are intrinsically a better diet? Well, this is the basis for the Daniel plan from Rick Warren's Saddleback Church. Some of you may be familiar with this. Um, it's been heavily marketed with a large portfolio of products, uh, soundtracks and cookbooks and study guides and so on. Now, I'm sure we would all be healthier eating less rich food and more vegetables. Um, but I don't think it's the diet itself that Daniel is resisting. He's resisting not the food and wine, but the source of the food and wine, the king's table, his hospitality and munificence. He's resisting the king who has assigned it. Daniel and his friends were showing that their ultimate loyalty was not to the king. They would not eat and drink in solidarity with him. And perhaps also there's an idea here that instead they would eat a simple diet in solidarity with their own people who were poor and wretched exiles. By contrast, again, if you read those last three chapters of uh, Second Kings, you'll have seen the very last two verses that, uh, uh, and this is the last two verses of what we call Israel's primary history that goes all the way from Genesis to Second Kings. It ends with Jehoiakim and all the other conquered kings in Babylon dining regularly at the king's table. As it were, Nebuchadnezzar presiding over all of these conquered kings, showing his greatness. But Daniel and his friends are not there. 
Meanwhile, the four friends flourish on their vegetable diet, and the Lord honors them. In verse 17. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Now for the third time, we read that God gave. He had given King Jehoiakim and the temple vessels into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. He had given Daniel loyal love and compassion in the presence of Ashpenaz. And now God gave the youth knowledge and understanding. So their skill doesn't come from their education in Babylon, in the language and literature, but it was the gift of God. And specific attention is drawn to Daniel's ability to understand visions and dreams. And this skill will be called upon in the next chapter when Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Verse 19, we read that at the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. So at the end of the three years, Ashpenaz presented the four young men to the king for evaluation. And he finds that they are the top of the class, and so they entered the king's civil service. Indeed, when it came to wisdom and understanding, they were ten times better than all of the others in the king's employ, all the magicians and all of the enchanters. Now, this does not mean that Daniel and his friends were themselves magicians and enchanters. Those men had to use their magic arts uh, in order to try and interpret the signs and the omens and the dreams uh, that will feature in the book of Daniel. But Daniel and his friends did not need the magic arts to understand the dreams because they were gifted with wisdom and understanding directly from God. And in coming chapters, the magicians will find their magic arts inadequate. But God will supply Daniel with the necessary wisdom and understanding to continue to live there and serve the king while being loyal to God. Now, Daniel was not a prophet, although the one reference to him in the New Testament calls him a prophet. So we see here he was a man of wisdom and understanding, abilities given him by God. And with these gifts, he will be able to interpret the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar. He will able, be able to understand the writing on the wall during Belshazzar's feast in chapter 5. And with these gifts, he will also be able to navigate this difficult path between competing loyalties in service to the king in Babylon, but also giving ultimate loyalty to the Lord God. And then in the second half of the book, Daniel will himself see visions and dreams. And while he's not a prophet himself, he does study the prophets. He reads the prophets to see what they said is going to happen. And again, we'll encounter that in the second half of the book. And chapter, this chapter ends with a brief historical note in verse 21. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. So Daniel remained in Babylon in the imperial service till the first year of Cyrus the Persian, 
who conquered Babylon in the year 539. And Cyrus allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And significantly, he sent the temple vessels back with them. And this is considered to be the end of the 70 years of exile. So Daniel was in Babylon for the entire period of the exile. But only a few returned to Jerusalem. Daniel himself stayed in Babylon. Two generations later, Ezra would return to restore the centrality of Torah, of the law, followed by Nehemiah, who set about rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. In these past two Sundays, Jerry and Tim have drawn our attention uh, to this rebuilding work in their two-part series, uh, Return, Rebuild, and Rejoice. So thank you uh, to both of you for drawing the parallels between then and now as we emerge from the pandemic and uh, embark on a period of rebuilding and of a new normal. And uh, thank you to Tim. That was his first time up here preaching, and I hope will not be his last. Uh, great to have the elders up here preaching. Well, during the rebuilding, Jerusalem remained a minor backwater in a succession of mighty empires. The Persian Empire, then Alexander the Great's Greek Empire, then uh, the Ptolemaic Empire of Egypt and the Seleucid Empire of Syria that were competing with each other for control of Jerusalem, and finally, the mighty Roman Empire. And these great empires will feature in the visions of the second half of the book that we'll look at at some point next year. Now, Daniel did not go back to the land. Indeed, most Jews did not go home to the land. They remained in what we call the diaspora, the scattering spreading further and further afield. And by the time of Jesus, there were far more Jews in the diaspora living outside the land than there were Palestinian Jews living in the land. And to a greater or lesser extent, they were all longing for home, figuring out how to be loyal to the Lord in a foreign land. They were trying to sing the Lord's song in a foreign land. And they were reading the book of Daniel, which gave them hope and gave them wisdom in how to live in, when they've got competing loyalties, living in a foreign land but trying to be loyal to the Lord. Now, the Lord promised through his prophets that he would bring his people home. And he has done so. Not by bringing the diaspora Jews home to the land, but by gathering Jews and Gentiles together in Christ. So home is not a land with people, a city with walls, a palace with a king, a temple with divine presence. It is a person in whom all of these motifs of land, city, palace, and temple are fulfilled. Now, Lord Jesus Christ is our home in whom we have our identity. And when we are in Christ, we are home. In him we belong. We belong to God and we belong to one another. So rather than being gathered into one place, we are scattered throughout the world in a great variety of countries. And we're all in one way or another facing the challenge of living in the world while remaining loyal to King Jesus. Now Paul wrote to the Philippians, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And the verb there, conduct yourselves, is actually the word to live as citizens. And later in chapter 3, he states that our citizenship 
is in heaven. Now, we often will then think of that as being, well, the world's not my home, I'm just a passing through, and we don't really want to pay any attention to this world until we get home to heaven. But that's a misunderstanding of how the idea of citizenship works. This was language the Philippians could understand because Philippi was a Roman colony. Legally, it was a piece of Rome on foreign soil. The citizens, the residents of Philippi were actually Roman citizens living by Roman law on foreign soil. It was an outpost of Rome. Its purpose was to extend the influence of Rome into the province of Macedonia. And the goal of a colony is not to return to the homeland, but to extend the homeland into a new area. So Rome was extending its influence into Macedonia. And as citizens of heaven, we are to extend the influence of heaven onto earth, as being a colony of heaven on earth. Now, two weeks ago, when we were in Turkey, Sue and I saw a reconstruction of the sort of boat that was used in the, around the year 600 BC, so right about the time of Daniel. Um, and it was used by Greeks from the uh, settlement of Focha, which is today very close to Izmir in Turkey, on the west coast of Anatolia. Uh, and they set sail from there and founded a colony in Marseille. So this boat was built, and, they, and the uh, voyage was... Uh, Repeated in the year 2009, took 54 days uh, for a crew to sail and row their way. And uh, the ancient Greeks and Phoenicians, uh, both of them being seafaring people, they established lots of colonies throughout the Mediterranean. So in that first century world, this was, uh, of Jesus, this was a very familiar idea of a colony and living as citizens in a colony, citizens loyal to the homeland. Well, in Christ, God has established a beachhead on earth. He has planted a colony, the church. And if we are in Christ, our ultimate loyalty to him is to him. Him we confess as Lord. But we live out our lives here on earth in settings that are more or less hostile to him. And God desires that we flourish in these settings. And he fills us with his spirit so that we might extend heaven onto earth, so that we might flourish in a foreign land. Now in his first letter, Peter writes to, uh, as Sharon read, God's elect exiles scattered throughout these five provinces of uh, Anatolia. And in chapter two, he writes, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So we're all resident aliens, not just me. We're all resident aliens. Our true citizenship is in heaven, not in any earthly kingdom, but we are resident on earth. We are immersed in society in many different ways. Some are immersed in education, either on the delivering or the receiving end. Some in business, some in high tech some in caring professions, other ways in which we are all immersed in the society in which we live. And we are to seek the common good of our society so that both we and society flourish. And this can be challenging. 
Now, one of the ways that um, often Christians thought we need to do, well, we need to have a, get a Christian government, make a Christian land, and then we can harmonize and ensure that uh, everything we do will be done under Christian auspices. Well, the Western world is increasingly heading into a post-Christian age, and increasingly we live in realms which are more and more hostile to the things of God. But God knows where we are and wants us to flourish and wants us to be for the good of society so that people may see our good deeds and glorify God. And all of us, each of us in different ways, has to work out what, is, what it is to have these competing loyalties, to be citizens of heaven and yet live in this world in which we are embedded. Now, this can be challenging, especially challenging, for those in societies where Christians are persecuted. And for the last few months in the e-news, uh, each week we include a country from the Open Doors watch list of the 50 countries in the world where it's most uh, dangerous to be a Christian. Um, and I encourage you to read that little snippet in the e-news and to pray for the people in those countries uh, each week where it is so, so difficult and dangerous for them to be resident in a foreign land while having their citizenship in heaven, being loyal to King Jesus. But all of us are faced with this challenge of how to live as citizens of heaven while being resident here on earth. So how do we maintain our loyalty to our true king while living in the diaspora, living in exile, living in a foreign land? Well, we do it by regularly meeting together to worship our Lord, to sing songs of praise where it is to the Lord God and to Christ Jesus that we give our praise, our worship, our adoration. It is by reading the Scriptures together, by praying, by hearing God's Word expounded. And so we gather regularly to do that, to pay attention to God, and to remind ourselves that ultimately we are in His kingdom. And we do it by gathering for communion and regularly taking communion together. So when I started preparing this message, uh, and at least two months ago I realized for the direction this was going, and I thought even though our regular practice is to take communion together the first Sunday, and that was last Sunday, we have to have communion together at this point, because in it, we affirm our loyalties to God in Christ. And so, um, I invited you all as you came in to take, uh, well, you all, hopefully all took uh, communion elements. Um, so what is going on as we uh, prepare to take communion together? Well, the Lord has given us two symbols of our participation in Him, baptism and communion. Baptism is a one-time act whereby we transfer our allegiance to Christ. We renounce our other allegiances and we say, Christ, we follow you. You are our Lord and our sovereign. That's a one-time act. And I liken this to an oath of, uh, that oath of citizenship. And then communion is an often repeated act whereby we regularly confess our allegiance to Christ. And I liken this to the Pledge of Allegiance. 
And throughout the week, many things have competed for our allegiances. We've been torn with our loyalties um, in various ways, but regularly we regroup, we regather, we come together, and we confess our allegiance to Christ, and we eat and we drink at His table. So Daniel refused to eat and drink at Nebuchadnezzar's table as a sign of his loyalty to God. And God himself invites us to come and dine at his table on the gifts of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that are poured out for us. And so we prepare to come to the table and we remember our founding narrative that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only into the world. That Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not use that equality with God to his own advantage, but emptied himself, gave up that position with God, and entered into our story, became like us, became a servant, and became obedient even unto death. He gave himself for us, that we might be saved and that we might become like him. So we remember that founding narrative, and we remember that we are in communion together. We are in communion with God in Christ through his Spirit, and in communion with one another as the body of Christ that partakes of these elements together. And we proclaim his death until he comes, until that day when the land of our citizenship and the land of our residency shall be joined together, when heaven and earth shall be joined, and there will be no more conflicting loyalties, and we shall see our Lord face to face, and we shall be like him. Well, let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for these, your gifts to us. We thank you for the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself. We thank you for his obedience to you, that he went all the way to the cross, that he went to Jerusalem knowing that Jerusalem uh, had this pattern of killing the faithful prophets and listening to false prophets. That he did so in obedience to you, allegiance to you. Lord, he was, he was killed and you vindicated his obedience by raising him to life, and you invite us now to come and participate in his death and in his resurrection, and to do, and, and uh, symbolized in our baptism, and to regularly participate at your feast by eating these elements. Father, we thank you for this bread, which represents the body of the Lord Jesus broken for us, and the cup that represents his blood poured out for us. We thank you for these great gifts. And we pledge our loyalty to you and to the Lord Jesus Christ in his precious name. Amen. So the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. He broke it and he gave thanks. And he held it out to his disciples and he said, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Let us eat together.
Likewise, he took the cup and passed it to his disciples. He said, drink you all of this. This represents my blood, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins and the making of a new covenant in my blood. Let us drink this together in remembrance of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God for his amazing love. Well, Daniel and his uh, three friends were being prepared for the glorious presence of Nebuchadnezzar. But we are being prepared for a much more glorious presence. So to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Go in peace and flourish.